Okay, so good morning. I want to thank our generous sponsor this morning, Hensha Gansberg, who's sponsoring this morning's Pasha class in memory of her beloved father and the namesake of the Chumash from which we are learning, Irving Stone, the Stone Chumash. And in fact, she gave me her father, Irving Stone's actual edition of his art school, Stone Chumash, which I'll be using and we'll be learning from. Should be Le'iloi Nishmaso this morning. And by Robert and uh, Rachel Gruen, Le'iloi Nishmas, Esther Malkabas Yisrael, whose neshama as well should have an aliyah. We thank you for your sponsorship. As always, a quick overview of the parasha. And as always, we'll hopefully leave some time to get through some <laughs> sukkim. We last left off last year in the middle of explaining Az Yashir. Az Yashir, which is so critical to understand in order to have insight into the parasha, but also very worthwhile to understand because it happens to be that we say it each and every day. So consider this an hour-long sitter snippet where we're going to take something that we say is part of our davening every single day and really try to have greater insight and to understand it. But first let's begin at the beginning of the parasha, page 366, in the stone chumash. has even more meaning today to say that. In the article, stone chumash, page 366. Jewish people have been emancipated from Egypt. The Kaddish Baruch Hu has revealed his hand in unprecedented revelation. Ten miracles intervened, interceded with nature. The Jewish people did our part heroically, taking a sheep, tying it to the bedpost, slaughtering it. And Hashem struck the Egyptians and has liberated us, took us out. And now, When Paro let the people go, that Hashem did not lead them by way of the land of the Plishtim, even though that was more accessible, even though Waze would have told you that's the more direct route. But because Hashem said, The people might reconsider they see war. It's a very fragile people. They still have a slave mentality. They're still very vulnerable. I have to be careful and protect them. What they are exposed to, what they see. They'll want to come back to Mitzrayim. And Rabbi Salavitchik points out that in this term, the Medrash makes the following statement on the word, the people, lest the people led them around. Circuitous route. And from here is where Chazal understand that Lashon, that language, Vayasev, does that remind you of any practice we have at the Seder table? Vayasev? How do we drink? How do we consume the wine? How do we eat the matzah? The Haseba. We lean. We recline. Chazal and the Medrash Shmos Rabbah say from here that the rabbis learn that even a poor person must not eat until he reclines. Afilu Anishma Yisrael, Lo Yochal Achi A poor person, a missionary Psachim, even the poor person. Now, why would you think a poor person should not recline? Because it looks ridiculous. It's a poor person. So he's going to go through the motions, the outward appearance. He's going to demonstrate freedom and, and majesty and royalty and aristocracy. And look at me reclining. I'm so wealthy and I'm waited upon. So you'd think the poor person, like, who are you fooling? Who are you fooling? So the Mishnah says, no, even the poor person. That night we're all wealthy. And that night we're all free. And where do we learn that from? This word, Vayasev Elohim Es Ha'am. And the question of Islamic asks is, what in the world did Chazal? It's just a key play on words, Vayasev, Haseba, it's the same root, same word. So from here we know that everyone, even those who don't feel like leaning, even those who are leaning not by choice, because they're not healthy to sit up straight. How do you know that everyone leans? How do you know that everybody leans? What's the connection? Rabbi Soledic said the following, The mitzvah of reclining is due to the obligation to reenact the exodus from Egypt. Through reclining, one demonstrates freedom. And while it's obviously difficult for a poor person to perform such reenactment, 
He has to feel free despite the fact that he's dependent at the moment on others. Seventh day of Pesach, the anniversary of Kriyas Yamsev, is the culmination of Pesach. But it was 40 long years after this miraculous event before the nation entered the land of Israel. And indeed, complete redemption still has not taken place. Here we are in the diaspora, here we are in Golos, here we are still dispersed across the world, here we are still confronting anti-Semitism, where a congressman who makes a comment, a racist comment, appropriately is removed from all the committees he sits on. And I think the GOP deserves great credit and recognition for swiftly acting against somebody who could make such racist and white supremacist comments. But yet colleagues in Congress can act without recourse, say anything they want about Jews to new members of Congress, and nobody says boo, nobody stands up, nobody talks about their committee assignments. We still live in a world where we have not yet experienced a complete redemption. There's no base on Mikdash, there's no Hashra Sashkina, Hashem's divine presence is not intensely felt or felt by all. And so not only did the redemption defined by entering the land of Israel not happen until 40 years after they came out of Israel to a certain degree and to a certain extent, it is yet to occur. This is the fate of the Jew, says the Rav. God leads his people via a roundabout route. Throughout our historical path, we have demonstrated great faith and trust as we await for the fulfillment of his promise. Even though he may tarry, we still wait. The Jews suffered oppression and expulsion through many years in the history of our people. And yet, we recline on Seder night, fulfilling the imperative of reenacting our redemption. Although we may experience poverty or other hardships, although God still leads his people in a roundabout manner, the promise of redemption remains. We must strengthen ourselves with the trust that the promise will be realized. Such a phenomenal, fantastic, meaningful insight of the Rav. What do you mean the poor person also reclines Seder night? Who's he fooling? How hypocritical, how fake, how inauthentic. You're poor, what are you reclining? What are you putting on a show? And that's what we learn. The poor person does a seba from the word vayasev that Hashem took them in a roundabout way, said the Rav. Hashem is still taking us in a roundabout way. Redemption is not linear. Redemption doesn't happen in a straight line. Redemption is like the stock market. It's volatile. It goes up and down. You hope it trends up. But there's no day, just no week, no month, no year. The market doesn't just go up. It's volatile. It goes up and down and up and down. And a big up and a big down. And you just hope that overall the trend is up. Redemption is not linear. It unfolds in increments. And it's a process. And it evolves. And we spoke about this, the Dalad Lashonos of Geula, the four languages, and we quoted the Yerushalmi, who says, not Dalad Lashonos, it's not four languages of Geula, but it's Dalad Geulos. There are four redemptions. Redemption doesn't happen overnight. And even the current beginning of redemption, the flowering of redemption, the Reishis Smichas Geula Senu, that we are living in, didn't happen overnight. It's still unfolding, the redemption in Israel. We're still having to secure our boundaries and we're still having to fight enemies, physical enemies and BDS enemies. Redemption doesn't happen. Vayasev, it's circuitous. So collectively our story is circuitous and individually our stories. It's ups and downs. The poor person ends up doing well. The person doing well, it's a galgal, it's a wheel. There's an economic cycle. Sometimes you're on top and sometimes you're on the bottom. And so even the poor person on the night of the Seder reclines, is he a fraud? Is she a fake? No. It's the recognition that redemption is circuitous. Redemption evolves. And that right now I may be poor. And right now my bank account may look like it's empty. But that's the beginning of redemption. That too is a stage in redemption. 
And therefore, Vayaseva and Haseba, the person doing Haseba, even while they're poor, and even when they don't feel like or look like they should be doing Haseba, is entitled to do Haseba, and should do Haseba, because redemption happens, Vayasev. Writes the rough deviations from the straight course characterize the strange movement of Jewish history. The longest, not the shortest route, seems to be our destiny. The zigzagging pattern of our historical past, seeming to violate the geometric rule that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. At times we seem to be approaching our destiny, slowly but surely, and suddenly we're deflected, thrust aside or forced to move in the opposite direction. Positions previously achieved are abandoned, the accomplishment of entire generations are wiped away. Whole settlements, Yishuvim, are annihilated. We find ourselves starting anew, just as surely Gula once again starts beckoning, inspiring new hopes and movements. This process of historical detours is unlike the history of other nations, which seem more or less to be moving in a straight course from the inception of nationhood to eminence upon occasion and to subsequent decline. Just think of the 20th century. Has there ever been a greater expression of Vayasev, the circuitous root of the Jewish people than the 20th century? The beginning of the 20th century, European Jewry on top of the world, successful, accomplished, participating in society, independent. The Meshachachmar of Meir Simcha of Dvinsk describes that they believed, Ber- they called Berlin Yerushalayim. They were so comfortable and so settled. Rav Meir Simcha writes that in his time they described Berlin as the Yerushalayim of their day, the golden age. And from there, six million are annihilated, wiped off. You talk about a circuitous route. And at the end of the Holocaust, the survivors of you would have told them that within three years, there would be the founding of the modern state of Israel, an Israeli army, an Israeli air force. And that within 70 years, that modern state of Israel would be an economic superpower, would be a military superpower, and that the state itself would be the largest contributor to Talmud Torah, the biggest supporter of Talmud Torah than anyone in history with more kolam, yeshivas, and learning going on in Israel than ever before. Tell a Holocaust survivor on their way being liberated out of camp that that would happen not in a hundred years or a thousand years, but in three years. You talk about vayasev, the circuitous root of the Jewish people. We have to get used to it. Those who are shocked and stunned by the escalation of anti-Semitism shouldn't be. That's the norm. The last 70, 75 years have been a reprieve. The world gave us just a little bit of a window, a break, a little time off, because we had it so rough in the Holocaust. And now we're just going back to the normal of the 2,000 years. This isn't new, this is old, as old as the Jewish people ourselves. Vayasev, our life, our journey, collectively, individually, has been a circuitous route. And the key to remember is, that even when you're an Ani Shabi Yisrael, that even when you're feeling poor and down and out, and hopeless and helpless, you still do Haseba. You recline. Why? Not just because you fake it till you make it. And not just because jo- you know, they say dress for the job you want, not the job you have. So I'm going to recline because then I'm not going to be an ani. I'll be a rich person if I'm reclining. It's not just that we're demonstrating who we want to be. It's that we believe we're already those people. The poor person does a seba because they realize vayasev, that life is circuitous and they will be back. And the parsha then continues with the fulfillment of a promise that was made, Moshe on the way out of Egypt says, whoa, one more thing I have to grab. Some people are grabbing their picture album, and some people are grabbing their family heirlooms, and some people are grabbing their favorite luggage, and some people are grabbing their technology, and what does Moshe go to grab? The bones of Yosef. The bones of Yosef. Why? 
Because the promise had been made. Yosef said, whatever you do, don't leave me in Mitzrayim. Get me out of here. I want to be buried in the land of my forefathers. And now Moshe makes good on that promise. He takes the bones of Yosef together with him because he took an oath. He took a prom- made a promise. God will surely remember you. Bring me up my bones from here with you. The Rogachever of Shechter and the Sefer and the Parsha quotes that the Rogachever asks, how could a promise from the past be binding on the next generation? The Rogachever was asked, people used to send postcards to the Rogachever with a question and he would answer very succinctly and uh, those postcards were collected in Shalos HaTshuvah's Tofnas Paneah. So the Rogachever was asked, the Ksuba says, there were Shalos Shavuos, there were three oaths we took We'll talk about this tonight when we discuss Rav Teichtel. But the anti-Zionists believe, whether they actually believe this fundamentally or they use this to support what they believe for other reasons, but they quote the Gemara that we took three oaths to Hashem based on Shir Hashir, the Pesukim Shir Hashir. And one was that we won't, we won't take Israel by force. We'll wait till the redemption. And the Raghat Shavu was asked, well, how can an oath that was taken hundreds or thousands of years ago be binding on me? I didn't take the oath, I didn't make the promise. Whoever took the oath, whoever made the promise, has to make good. But if I didn't take it, why am I bound by it? And the Rugged Shavar answers that question, which we won't get into now, by addressing our Pasuk. Why is Moshe, why do the Jewish people, when they're leaving Egypt, feel bound by a promise that was made to Yosef so many years earlier? How can a promise or an oath transcend time? How can a future generation be bound by something that they weren't even alive when the, promise, when the promise was made? So the promise was made to Yosef, and here Moshe makes good on it, and he collects, and he gathers, and he takes Moshe's, takes Moshe's Yosef rather, Yosef's bones together with him. While everyone else is schlepping their luggage, Moshe's carrying a coffin on his back. And the Abar Benel wonders, why is the Torah first telling us about this now in Parshas B'Shalach? After they left Egypt... Where should it have told us? Last week, Pasha's bow, when they're preparing to leave. By now, they're already out of Egypt. They're about to get stuck between the Egyptians and the sea. They're about to sing the wondrous song that, please God, we'll get to studying together this morning. So it's too late to go back and grab the bones. The bones were in Egypt. Why didn't the Torah tell us last week, Pasha's bow, that Moshe grabbed the coffin, Moshe grabbed the, the bones. Why did it wait till now? And the Mechilta explains... This newly emancipated nation barely had a moment to celebrate their freedom before their former oppressor is pursuing them, boxing them in, squeezing them between the sea before them and the Egyptians behind them. And when the Egyptian military and their chariots drown in the sea, their wealth, their gold, their silver, silver is all floating. Those chariots were adorned with gold and silver. They were ornate. And when the Egyptians drown, all their wealth starts floating to the top for the Jews. And as they stood on the other side of the sea watching and welcoming their salvation, what did they bend down and pick up? This is a newly formed nation, just freed from slavery, and they gathered all the wealth. They picked up the gold and the silver. They took the, the spoils. All of them were picking up the spoils, except one. Moshe says the Mechilta had the wisdom, Chachmasa v'chasiduso, 
Moshe had the wisdom and the righteousness to collect what was the greatest wealth at that moment. And it wasn't gold and it wasn't silver. He didn't pick up possessions or material things. He took the bones of Yosef Atzadik. And so while the rest of the members of this newly formed nation took advantage of the moment to try to gain newfound personal wealth and a brighter future, Moshe was unwilling to look only to what lay ahead. He recognized that they couldn't go on with what came behind. Yosef. Yosef's part of them. He's their history. He's their connection to the past. He reminds them of where they come from and their roots. And he's unwilling to forge forward on their new future. He doesn't want to secure only the physical material future. He wants to secure their spiritual future. And how do you secure your spiritual future? By looking at your... By looking at your past. Vayikach Moshe is Atmos Yosef Imo. He takes Yosef. He's part of them. The Kliyakar on that Pasuk says, it doesn't just say Vayikach is Atmos Yosef, but it says he took as Atmos Yosef Imo. He didn't just carry the bones of an old ancestor. He took Yosef Imo. He took Yosef with him. Yosef's life shaped who he was and who he was to become. The Iture Torah says, don't read it Atmos Yosef, but read it as Atmos Yosef. He didn't just take the bones, he took the essence of Yosef. Yosef's narrative, Yosef's personal story, Yosef's challenge, his courage, his heroism, his accomplishments, his rise to greatness, his extraordinary ability to raise a Jewish family in a foreign culture and land. He didn't just take the Atmos Yosef. He didn't just transfer the bones. He took the Atmos Yosef. He understood and he reviewed who Yosef was and the life that he lived. And he took Yosef, he took Yosef with him. And that is the message of fulfilling that promise. He didn't do it as a fulfillment of a promise to Yosef. He did it for himself and he did it for his people. I was listening to a book that I love and I've highly recommended called Essentialism by Greg McKeon. So the author was interviewed recently on a podcast by Tim Ferriss, another author who I enjoy. And um, he made the following point, which I reserve the right to use in a Yiskid Russia in the future, but I'll tell it to you now anyway. He says, he's polled thousands and thousands of people, and he's only come across a few who could name the first name and last name of all eight of their great-grandparents. If we did that exercise in this room right now, I imagine we would have the same result. How many can name the first name and last name of all eight of their great-grandparents? Now, please, God, that's changing and will change when great-grandparents are going to live and overlap with their great-grandchildren and there'll be those relationships. So you can change that too, please, God, in a few years. Great-great-grandchildren. That is an incredibly depressing thought. And it's a depressing thought because it means as we're living our lives where we think we're so important and the legacy we're forming and the name that we're making, the thought that our great-grandchildren won't even know our name is incredibly disturbing. And upsetting. And the point he makes when he raises this is that they may not know our name, but they'll feel our impact because the choices we'll make today will set them on the trajectory that they're going to be living tomorrow. So your great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren may not know your first and last name, but they'll know your impact by how you lead your life and what you leave and the legacy, religiously, materially, emotionally, the family you build, and in so many other which ways. Atzmos Yosef, not Atzmos, Atzmus Yosef. Moshe says, before I cross this sea, before I come out on the other side, and before I remember where they're supposed to be going, 
The journey right now is supposed to be immediately and directly into the land of Israel. And before I go, says Moshe, I have to take the Atzmos and the Atzmos Yosef. We have to know where we come from. We have to know how we got here. We have to learn the lessons. We have to show the appreciation. It's a very powerful beginning to our, to our parsha. Why were they afraid? The Jewish people are, are so afraid when they see this number of chariots. We'd rather serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. So the Ibn Israel asks, you have 600,000 Jewish men at Yamsuf, and why are they so afraid when they see 600 chariots? 600,000 against 600 chariots for one time in history, the odds were in our favor. We had the numbers. So why were the Jewish people so afraid? Why does the Apostle describe that in fact they're so anxious and so fearful, they say, let us turn around, let's get out of here. And the Ibn Ezra explains, because they're slaves, and they still have a slave mentality, and they still have a sense of, a sense of passiveness and fear, and they're afraid to contradict anyone, to antagonize anyone. And even when that fear is unjustified and unfounded, when a person feels defensive and fearful, they will always be anxious. Only when they see their oppressor drown the sea are they ready to move on. Only then are they ready to take that next step towards, towards freedom. How do they react? They daven. They call out to Hashem, save us. You think that's a good thing? I would have thought that's a great thing. Here you have this people, this nation, who came out of the 49th level of Tomah, and so quickly they've learned that the way to react in a crisis is to call out to Hashem. You'd think Hashem would give them a huge Ashikach. Unbelievable. Coupon to Dunkin' Donuts. Doesn't Dunkin' Donuts for everyone. It's amazing. You did the right thing. Good boys and girls, you daven. Instead, Hashem says, what are you doing? Why are you talking? Close your mouth and start walking. Why would Hashem be encouraging them to walk? Anashem and Aminadav is the hero, although he did the most foolish thing. He walks into the sea. And we all know the Medrash, the water is at his knees and then its hips, then it's at his shoulders and his mouth and it starts to come up to his nose. And what does he do? He's still walking. And of course here, this is the makor for the conversation of the balance between Ishtablis and Hashkacha Pratis. When do we take initiative? When do we believe it's all up to us? When do we have to take action? And when do we rely on Hashem? When do we turn to Him? On Wednesday morning, we studied this in the Amunashir. We've been studying this, contrasting the positions of Rabbeinu Bachya in his Chovos Halavavos with the Ramban. Two very different perspectives on Hishtadlus, on the importance of taking action. But essentially, Hishtadlus is a form of Amuna. If you believe that Hashem is all capable, then you're willing to act, even in irrational ways. You're willing to do the impossible and the improbable because you think nothing is beyond Hashem. When you sit back and wait for a miracle, Hashem says, ah, you think you're so worthy of a miracle? But if you take action, even if it's action which is a long shot, even if it's action which makes no sense, that initiative and that action is in itself an expression of, of emuna. But we discussed this much more. Jewish people across the Yamsuf, wow, what a miracle. See, splits, combines, it crashes, their oppressors are gone, oppressors are gone, and finally, finally they're ready to see themselves as free people. Hashem saves them. Rabbi Soloveitchik points out that it doesn't say Hashem saved them me, miyad mitzrim, from the hands of the Egyptians. What does it say? Miyad Mitzrayim. What's the difference between Miyad Mitzrim and Miyad 
Mitzrayim, at the Yamsuf, the nation was liberated not only from the tyranny of Egypt, but Miyad Mitzrayim, the Egyptian culture, from their mode of thought. The full significance of their physical liberation a week earlier was only now understood, and as a result, both Moshe and the people sang Shira. They weren't just free from the physical tyranny, but Miyad Mitzrayim. They had broken out. They didn't just take Jews out of Egypt, but with this miracle, Egypt was taken out of the Jews. Miyad Mitzrayim. To transcend, to rise above, to rise above even Mitzrayim. Vayaminu Bashem, they believe in Hashem, U? Moshe Avda. We won't get into it right now, but that's a difficult phrase. We say that in our dominating every day. We're equating faith and belief in Hashem with belief in Moshe? Isn't it dangerous when we turn to charismatic leaders with such faith and invest so much of ourselves in them? What does it mean to have faith in both Hashem Moshe Avdo? And then we have Az Yashir. We began studying it last year. We're going to continue and pick up with it in a moment. But in Az Yashir, and we say that in the moment of the revelation, the Shifcha Alayam, the unsophisticated person at the sea, saw with greater clarity and greater sophistication than the highest prophet, than Yechezkel Bambuzi. What an amazing moment of revelation when everything comes together, no one had said Shira until that moment. How is Shira different than Tefillah? Plenty of prayers had been offered. Shira is when everything that felt so disjointed and made no sense and felt so irrational and one felt such a product of randomness, when it all comes together and when it all makes sense and you see the full picture, you're overwhelmed with Shira. You just want to sing songs. You're dancing down the street. You're just overwhelmed. Shira is the spontaneous eruption of song, the overwhelming feeling of gratitude when everything makes sense. When you go from seeing the dots on the canvas to seeing the big picture, or when you see the back of the embroidery where there's loose threads and nothing looks like it makes sense, and you turn it around and you see the whole picture. We live life in the dots. We live life in the loose threads. And there are brief moments, glimpses, blips, if we're lucky in our lives, which are Shira Sayyam moments, where everything came together. And now I know why I went through, and now I know I went to that place, and why that was delayed, and why my child and my sibling. Now I understand why everything unrolled and unraveled the way it did. Because had it not, I never would have been brought to this moment. And in that moment, when we see that, if we see it and reflect upon it, we erupt with a spontaneous sense, literally or figuratively, of shira, of song. And in this song we pledge, Zakeli ve'anveyu. This is my God. And I will make ve'anveyu. What is the word ve'anveyu? Zakeli ve'anveyu. Perak tezvav, pasuk, base. Chapter 15, verse 2. The beginning of Az Yashir. This is my God, Zakeli Va'anvehu, and I will build him a sanctuary. The God of my father, and I will exalt him. First of all, this Pasuk is so powerful. We're not gonna we, we move past this, so we're not gonna spend time on it now, but I'll remind you. The Pasuk itself is a statement of our philosophy. Zakeli, he's my God, and he's Eloke Avi. And the Jew is supposed to live both simultaneously. We have a relationship with the Ribon Shalom that's predicated, that's built on our Masorah, our tradition. My parents had a closeness with Hashem. 
My grandparents were close with Hashem, my great-grandparents. So there are family friendships and family relationships, and they transcend just me. And even if I don't feel close at this moment, and even if the communication doesn't feel so open and flowing at this moment, but there's a relationship that's elokei avi. This is lost on much of the younger generation today, who only do things that are zekeli. If it's meaningful to me, if it makes sense to me, if it makes me feel good, if it fills my needs... I, what if it doesn't? If it doesn't, I'm not interested. I drop it, I move on. What about the fact that your family's been doing this for thousands of years? That you're a link in a chain? That if you abandon it or walk away, you'll sever a tradition of your family? Ah, who cares? It doesn't do anything for me. Why do I have to do something for someone else? Because my great-grandparents or my great-grandchildren? Eh, it doesn't do it for me. But the Pasuk is telling us that's not how a Jew lives. A Jew lives simultaneously with both. A relationship that's predicated, that's built on Elokei Avi. My parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents. I'm a link in a chain. I'm part of a Mesora community. I have a relationship with Hashem because of a tradition I've received. And at the same time, Zekeli. I have to go pursue an individual relationship with Hashem. Where is He in my life? What are His expectations of me? What are the gifts and blessings He's uniquely bestowed upon me? What's my relationship, my individualized, personalized, unique relationship with Hashem? And throughout our liturgy, now that you understand and hear that insight, you'll see throughout our liturgy the relationship and the references to both. Pointed out in the Siddur snippets, we're up to Birchos HaShachar. Shasali Kotsarki. Shasali, you see every morning. It's not Shasa Kotsarchei Ha'olam. It's not that God made a world and He gave everybody more or less what we need. It's Shasali. It's the only of the 15 brachas where we say the word li. Individualized, personalized. I have everything I need. How do I know? Because by definition, what Hashem gave me is everything I need. Li. The beginning of the Amida. Elokeinu. Elokei avoseinu. I begin my conversation with Hashem. I take three steps forward. And now I'm in a spot and I'm in a place there's no one else in the world. My feet are together like an angel with one leg. I have nowhere else to go. An intimate, personal rendezvous with Hashem. Hashem, you're ready for a conversation. I introduce you with Hashem's Fasaitiftah. Open my lips. Let these words flow. Let me have a conversation with Hashem. Let me talk to you, Hashem. I got some things I want to talk to you about. Things I want to protest, things I want to express gratitude, things I want to ask you for. I have a conversation. You've got to prepare for a conversation. You're going into a big meeting, you're going to prepare, and the Amida demands preparation. That's why we say Psuke de Zimra, that's why at Mincha we say Ashrei, that's why at Marav we have introductory paragraphs. Because you have to be ready, you have to calibrate and align what is my agenda for this meeting. I'm having an audience with Hashem. You go in to see a, a Hasidish Rebbe, what do you just walk in? He says, What would you like a bracha for? You know, I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> I guess I'd need a bracha for. You walk in, you write Yikfitl, you got all the names, these are the things in my life, the people around me I care about, here's what I want a bracha for. Kiviyachal, you're walking into a, an audience, you're invited to the Oval Office, you're going to meet with the President, things you want. The president says, what can I do for you? I'm the leader of the free world, the most powerful man on the planet, what can I do for you? You say, you know, give me a minute, I didn't really get a chance to think about that. <laughs> You're going to craft your words. You're going to shape them. You're going to think about them. You're going to want to know what to say. So the Amida takes a proper Amida. You take a few moments. What, what, what's going on in my life? What's on tap for today? What happened yesterday? What do I want to talk to Hashem about? I've said countless times. This isn't directly relevant. But I've said countless times. The Amida is a template. 
Chazal, Anshay Knesset Zagidola gave us the Amida as a template. And they said, look, on the days that you're struggling for words, don't worry, we got your back, here the words. But you can't just deliver Hashem the words. I've said this analogy countless times. You come on your anniversary and you, went, you bought the card, American Greetings, I was going to say Hallmark, but today we better say American <laughs> Greetings. Stone of Commission, honor of... Uh, so you go and you buy an American Greetings card and you're going to give it to your wife, to your spouse, and they open it up and they say, thank you so much, it's so nice, you made your way all the way to CVS. And you bought the card, and even this little piece of paper costs $400, but it's so nice, the American Greetings card, but it's blank. You say, yeah, but I didn't have to write my own words, it pretty much says what I want to tell you. It says everything. I even underlined a few special words that I found in the card. Some of the words I even double underlined. That's how far I want to tell you how much I love you. So the spouse says, okay, but the card's blank. It's blank. There's not, you had nothing to say besides what American Greetings authors thought of? So well, they were so good. I, there was nothing to add. How's that anniversary going to go? <laughs> That's going to be a rough anniversary. It's going to be a difficult birthday. On the other hand, you grab a napkin and you scribble down, I don't know where I'd be without you. 30 years ago was the best day of my life. Hashem found my other half. You're the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Blah, 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 blah. And then you go out for dinner, romantic candle at dinner, and you hand over the napkin with the scribbles. Wow, these sentiments are so meaningful. But you didn't have two seconds to pick up a card? <laughs> you couldn't get a card? This napkin, I'm going to frame this napkin, I'm going to save the napkins in a shoebox, what am I going to do with this napkin? So what's the answer? We go, we buy a card, and then we write personal things that complement what it says in the card. And the Amida is our card. Anshay Knes Sagadola were the American greetings of their time. And they wrote us the most incredible card to Hashem. And it contains the totality of the requests. It is the categories of requests that are universal, that anyone could ever need. From health, to intellect, to justice. And you know what? Then they threw in one generic, Shema Komeinu. And they said, here's one, the ultimate universal bracha of it. Fit in whatever you want. Put in whatever you want for that day. Hashem, please help me get a seat at the Parsha class when we find parking. Whatever you want, Shema Komeinu, you can throw in the Shema Komeinu. So imagine you spend 50 years of your life just handing Hashem blank cards. You never once filled in anything. You didn't even write, Dear Hashem. from <laughs> Shana. You didn't even write anything to Hashem. You hand them the sitter, the template, the card. Lovely. You picked up a card and you read the words. And maybe you say some of them emphatically. That's like a double underline on some of the words. But don't you have anything personal to add or to say? Hashem wants to know that He's hearing from you. There's nothing going on in your life. Nothing to protest, nothing to ask for, nothing to express gratitude about. Nothing. Every one of us, every moment, could have endless conversations. Endless conversations. And you know what? If you were meeting with the big Rebbe, or meeting with the President, even if you had nothing to ask for for yourself, would you not take advantage of that audience to ask for others you care about? So, Elokeinu, Veloke Avoseinu. We begin the Amida. Zakeli, Vanveo, Eloke Avi. Both. We have this dichotomy, we have this parallel, we live in both simultaneously. I'm in a relationship because I'm part of a family relationship. An intergenerational relationship. Our families go way back. Eh, I don't particularly like the one that's my generation. But our families go way back. 
And therefore our family is going to continue. Our children will continue to know one another. And we have Thanksgiving together. We go on vacation together. We remember each other's birthdays. We don't even live in the same place anymore, but we call each other three times a year because it's a family relationship. Okay, Avi, even if I don't feel it. But then on top of that, he's okay. So it's in this Pasuk, it's Az Yashir. It's from the birth of our nation, of our peoplehood. And it appears in the beginning, it's the way begin the Amidah itself. This Zekeli Vanveya, we learn. The Gemara learns that we have to imitate Hashem. Because how is it Zekeli? If He's really our God, if He's really our God, if He's really our deity, He's the omnipotent, omniscient, perfect, infinite God, then what is the greatest form of flattery? What is the greatest form of flattery? Rabbi Moskowitz and I remind ourselves of this every time we see a, a shul advertising a program that looks very familiar to us. <laughs> so we always remind each other, don't be insulted. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. It's flattering. So how do we flatter Hashem? What is the, the anveil? How do I praise Hashem? How do I flatter Hashem? Flattery. So what is the anveil? Chazal say, read the word vanveil as... Anveyu is ani vehu. He and I. I'm like him. I'm imitating Hashem. So on the one hand, we learn it from here. Zakeli vanveyu. On the other hand, the Gemara elsewhere learns how do I know I have to imitate Hashem? I think last week we quoted one of the most famous Latin expressions, ex nihilo. So this week we can quote the other Jewish Latin expression, imitatio de. So well educated. Everyone knows what that means. How to, to imitate Hashem, to imitate the divine. We have an obligation to imitate the divine. So we learn from Zekeli Vanveyu Anivahu, and we also learn in Matat I have to imitate the divine from Acharei Hashem Olakechem Telechu, Vahalachta Bidrachav. I have to walk in his way. So one of those we learn, just as Hashem is kind, just as Hashem is gracious, just as Hashem is patient, just as Hashem is forgiving, you have to be like Him. From the other passage we learn, just like Hashem visits the sick, just like Hashem comforts the mourner, just like Hashem dresses the naked, just as Hashem is charitable, you have to be charitable. Isn't it redundant? Why do we need both psukim? Rabbi Yonason Sachs was here this past Shabbos, an incredible Shabbos of Shirim. In one of his Shirim, he quoted this. It's from Rav Asher Weiss. Rav Asher Weiss has this insight in the Asher. Why do we have two separate psukim and why do we have two different limudim? It's the same idea. Be like God. Imitate Hashem. The answer is, one is about what we do and the other speaks to who we are. It's not enough to be an Osa chesed. You have to be a Baal chesed. What's the difference between an osa chesed and a baal chesed? An osa chesed does chesed. A baal chesed becomes a person who feels, who de- develops an instinct and an intuition towards chesed. It's not just that I'm a cruel, self-centered, miserable, low-life, isvarf, obnoxious <coughs> jerk of a person, but I want to hedge and make sure I get in upstairs, so I do chesed. But I do it begrudgingly, and I do it ungraciously, and I do it hesitantly, and I do it not really wanting to do it. You are fulfilling, ma, just like he's mevakir cholam, you have to be mevakir cholam, if you're mevakir cholam. But if you hate going and complain about it after you leave, and you don't really want to be there while you're there, then you have not molded yourself into mahurachum afatarachum. So the two separate sukkim and the two separate limudim correspond with the two non-overlapping obligations. We have to both imitate Hashem in our action, in our deed, but we also have to learn to imitate Hashem by molding and shaping and crafting our personalities into being those very, those very personalities. Okay.
Continue with Azyashir. After Azyashir, people complain right away. Three days. Three days go by, they complain. Three whole days. I think we should celebrate that. I think it's extraordinary for the Jewish people. They made it three days without complaining. We hold it against them, but I think it's a tremendous accomplishment. Has anyone seen anyone go three days without complaining? It's easy to go three days without eating. Three days. Again, we don't have time. I want to get through our psukim for the last few minutes of our class. But how do you complain three days? Ten plagues, splitting of a sea, wealth washes up ashore. Like, how could you complain ever again after everything that they just went through? How could they possibly complain? How could they possibly complain after experiencing and seeing all of these incredible miracles? It's a great question. And we're not going to answer it right now. So Hashem responds by giving the man. We commemorate the man with the Lacha Mishnah on Shabbos. So much more to talk about the man. We've talked about it in the past. We're not going to talk about it now. And the parsha ends with being attacked by a Malik. Amalek came. We were on fire. We were inspired. And what happens to a Malik? Asher Korcha Baderach. Korcha is Lashem Kor. They tried to extinguish our fire. They poured cold water on our fire. Ah! You think there's such a Hashem? You think these were miracles? Nothing to do with miracles. It had to do with the way the earth was turning on its axis, changed the ecosystem and the alignment of the stars and the wave patterns. The sea didn't really split. It was just a natural occurrence. Ten plagues, each could be explained naturally. A malek, a malek is koach, we have, we have the koach of, Rafutna describes, that the power of Amalek is the koach of eh. We're the koach of awe. Everything you see, you're in awe. It's amazing. I'm in awe. It's incredible. The Yad Hashem is evident everywhere. And Amalek, Amalek is the koach habitel. They try to just knock everything down. Sarcasm, cynicism, undermining, cunning. Amalek is the koach of eh. Eh. Wasn't that great? Eh. How was the meal? Eh. How was the concert? Eh. How was the sheer? Eh. How was the drush? Eh. How was it? How's your daughter? Eh. How's everything? Eh. Everything's eh. Koach habitel. That's a We're supposed to live with the wow and the awe. And Asher Kacha, they splashed cold water on our fire. We were on fire. So inspired, so uplifted, so empowered. Asher Kacha. Asher Kacha, how did they splash cold water? Milosha Mikra. Happenstance, chance. And how did we defeat Amalek? We didn't really defeat Amalek, in fact. We just pushed them off. We survived Amalek. We didn't defeat Amalek. We're still fighting Amalek. Still fighting Amalek. We never defeated them. We've only survived them until now. But how did we survive them? B'chalanu on Hashem. Moshe tells Yoshua, go choose men. And then Moshe raises his hands. When he raises his hands, they're winning. When he lowers his hands, they are losing. It's ridiculous. Mishnah Rosh Hashanah asks, do you win or lose a war based on the position of your hands? Does that even make sense? How did Moshe hold his hands up in the sky? Hands get heavier. The longer you hold them, the heavier they become. But we actually have a practice based on this. Moshe Aaron Vachur. Aaron and Vachur held up his hands. And Rashi quotes, Three people must pass before the Aaron. One leads the prayers and one stands on either side. So many of the men are on Yom Kippur. It's not just the Chazan. The Chazan is flanked 
by someone on either side, because the Jewish people were in a time of fasting while they battled Amalek, we continue to battle Amalek physically and metaphysically, and we therefore imitate Aaron and Hur on either side, standing on either side. We do this even, even during our day on, on Yom Kippur. When you say slichos, one on either side, and the Mishnah Bura writes, where do we know this from? and so on. Aaron and Hur held up their hands. The Or Gedalia says, Aaron and Hur holding up hands, what's going on here? So, I love this insight of the Or Gedalia. Aaron and Hur have opposite personalities. What defines Aaron? What's Aaron's character? He is? Oiv Shalom Vrodev Shalom. Aaron is a pacifist. He's a peacemaker. He's a peace lover. Aaron had like peace bumper stickers all over the back of his tent. <laughs> and he was just... Aaron loved peace. Oiv Shalom Vrodev Shalom. Who is Hur? Who is Hur? What? Who is Hur? What characterizes Hur? How did Hur die? Anyone know? Thank you. How did Hur die? So the Torah tells us the Chet the Medrash Tanchuma writes, "Miyad Amar Hur v'Gaar Bahem, Amdu Alav v'Harguhu." Hur protested the building of the Egel. He was a kanan. He was a zealot. He stood up, he screamed, he protested, he rallied. He was an absolute zealot. And because of his zealotry, it cost him his life. When he protested the organizers of the Chet Egel, they murdered him. They killed him. They killed him. So the Urgad says, Aaron and Hur are opposite personalities. They represent the zealot and the peacemaker. When do we defeat our enemy? When do we survive a Malek? When Aaron and Hur are on either side holding up Moshe's hands. When the Jewish people work with synergy and collaboration, when we have a sense of achtus, of unity, when you have the right and the left and the conservative, you have all the different extremes and the different perspectives and the different philosophies and the different attitudes. And when they're working together in tandem, that's when we win. Okay, let's get to our psukim for at least a few minutes. Got plenty of time left. What are you laughing about? So last year we left off Perak Tazvav, Pasuk Yedbez. Is where we left off. Natisa Yeminchativ Laimo Aretz. Pasuk says, see where we are? Page uh, 378 in the stone Chumash. Perig Tezvav, Pasuk Yidbez. Chapter 15, verse 12. In the middle of the Az Yashir that we say every single day. So the Pasuk says, Tipol Natisa Yeminchativ you stretched out your hand, Hashem, and the earth swallowed them. What are we talking about? Rashi writes, When Hashem stretched out his hand, the wicked, they fall, and they are obliterate. We describe Hashem's hand when we talk about His dominion over the world. you know why? Because we want to describe that for Hashem it's not heavy lifting. It's not hard work. He's the infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful Hashem. Mashal, 
you're holding a glass with a little flick of your finger, you break a glass, you break a vase. For the Hashem's flick of his finger, for the wave of his hand, he controls the entire universe. So Natitza Yemincha, Hashem stretched out his right hand, he flicked his finger, he waved his hand, and Tivlaimu Aretz, the earth swallowed up a people just with the flick of his finger, just with the wave of his hand. That's all it took. Natisa Yemincha. The Rashbam writes, so Rashi sees the Pasuk is describing Hashem's hand. You intervened in nature. You created the supernatural. What, did Hashem have to rest afterwards? Was he exhausted? Did he break a sweat? It's nothing. It's garnished with the wave of a hand. The Rashbam says, no, it's a reference to Hashem telling Moshe, put your hand on the sea so it will split. How did Hashem stretch out his hand? Through Moshe's hand. Moshe, as his emissary, as his ambassador, that's how he stretched out his hand. Rashi continues, The earth swallowed them up. Why did they merit the earth swallowing them up? The Mechilta says that as the Egyptians were drowning, they called out and they recognized Hashem's righteousness. They became Bali b'sha'achas. You can acquire your portion in one moment. So even after a lifetime of being persecutors and oppressors, even after a lifetime of wickedness and evil, but in their last moments they called out Hashem's righteousness, and because of that, they merited burial. They really should have floated around the sea. They shouldn't have merited a total burial. Anyone see the article that Zaka at the um, Daniel Brimmer in Hungary is going, they're using technology to find... Bodies of Holocaust victims who were thrown into the river, who were shot into the river, and they're using the technology and sensors, radar, to be able to find their remains and give a proper burial. It's going to be outrageous. There will be, there will be children and grandchildren who will get a phone call to have, right, based on the genetic testing that will come from it, to be able to prove it's extraordinary what's going on. So here, Zachul Lekvura, Tivla'emu Aretz. They, the Mitzrim, were Zochet Tekvura. It wasn't just that they floated in the river, that they never had peace, they never found a final resting. Here the Egyptians were Zochet to final resting Tekvura. Why? Because they, in that last moment, they expressed that sense of righteousness. Pasuk Yigimel. Nochisa b'chastach amzu ga'alta nehalta b'ozcha el nevei kadshecha. With your kindness you guided this people that you redeemed. You led with your might to where? Nevei Kachecha, to your holy Beis HaMikdash. Now, Nachisa Bechastacha, you Hashem with your Chesed. Where's Hashem's Chesed? What is this reference to? Nachisa Bechastacha. First of all, what tense is it in? Nachisa Bechastacha. It's in past tense. So is that a hint to what it's referring to? Nachisa Bechastacha. The Ibn Ezra says, Amar Nachisa Lashen Avar, Tachas Asid, Kemish Nevuos. He gave him as a gift. So this is, it's, it's using in the past tense, but Ibn Ezra says this is a literary tool that sometimes you talk about something in the future using with past tense, and it's prophetic. That Moshe is saying, Hashem, you're so kind. You were so kind. And what's the you were so kind is? You will be so kind. And how will Hashem be so kind? By granting us, by gifting us the pillar of the clouds and the fire, which are divine security systems. 
we don't need an army or a police force as we wandered in the desert, or at that time as they thought that they were about to journey into the land of Israel. So it's a past tense, which is prophetic about something in the future. And Nevei Kachecha, what's the Nevei Kachecha? Hashem, your kindness is you guided us. Where? To Nevei Kachecha, to your place of Kodesh. What's your place of Kodesh, says the Ibn Ezra? Har Sinai, Shesham Shachena Kavod. So Nevei Kachecha is the experience of contact with the Divine, which took place where? At? At Har Sinai. That is the Ibn Ezra's interpretation. Look at the Rashbam. That's outside of Israel. The Nevei Kachacha, where's the place of Hashem's holiness? His holy land. Your kindness, you're going to guide us right now. Remember, they thought, we're out, we're done, where's the next stop? Aliyah, the Nefesh Benefesh Israel. We're going to office, we're going to Israel. That's it. That's it, we're going to Israel. So the Ibn Ezra says, where's the kindness that Achis HaBachastacha is? Prophetically, you're going to give us divine protection. The Rashbam says, no. The kindness is, you're taking us, you're escorting us to Nevei Kachecha. Where's Nevei Kachecha? Eretz Kena'an. Whereas the Ibn Ezra saw Nevei Kachecha was Har Sinai. Look at the Svarno. Nachis HaBachastacha. Me'eshe ga'alta mezeke she'otseisam chutz l'gvu mitzrayim u'bo l'sukos. Hizchalta l'nachos ha'maderach. The Svarno says, you know what the kindness was? It's a reference back to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim when you guided the Jewish people to Sukkos and then into the Sibets, even before Kriyas Yamsuf. You guided us out by overseeing our journey, by serving as our GPS system, by taking care of us. The Ramban also weighs in here. Nevei Kachacha, he gives another explanation, a third explanation. Is Nevei Kachacha Harsinai? See Ibn Ezra. Is Nevei Kachacha Eretz Yisrael, the Rashbam? What's the third possibility? Beis HaMikdash. Remember, that was also part of the plan. Come into Eretz Yisrael, build a Beis HaMikdash right away. You'll have the Mishkan. The Mishkan will get upgraded to the Beis HaMikdash and it'll be a permanent place to relate to Hashem. So, says the Ramban, what Moshe was saying was, Nachisa Bachastacha. With your leading us with your chesed to again, either one interpretation is Harsina, where we'll get the Torah, to Eretz Canaan, the Holy Land, or to life with a Beis HaMikdash, Nevei Kachecha, Beis HaMikdash, three interpretations. Last week we quoted a fourth or an altogether different understanding from the Chavetz Chaim of Nachisa Bechastacha based on an insight of the Gra. Remember last week's parsha we studied how Lashon the Jewish people on the, on the way out of Mitzrayim were told ask kindly say please to borrow things from Re'echa. And remember we said the insight of the Gra, the Re'echa was not from the Mitzrayim, was from your fellow Jew. The Chavetz Chaim said that's what Nachisa Bechastacha you took us out with chesed. When we were able to display chesed, you reciprocated. You showed mida keneged mida that chesed, that chesed back. So, Ibn Ezra sees it as an expression of praise and thanksgiving that Moshe and the people are giving on the other side of the sea, not so much about the past, but foreshadowing the future. Omer nachis avar tachas asid. The Medrash Tana de Be'elio gives a different explanation. Says the Medrash, When they were in Egypt with bleakness and hopeless, they gathered together, they made a commitment. They made a covenant that they would show kindness with one another. Why that commitment? Why now? And that's what the Chavetz Chaim said. When the people realized they could not come up with a strategy to end the persecution of the Paro, it's only going to increase every day. They said, you know what? 
There's only one way we can relieve this suffering. There's only one thing that's going to make this even a little bit more palatable or better. And you know what it is? By being kinder to one another. So the Chavetz Chaim writes definitively, The kindness they showed one another was the catalyst and cause for their salvation. And he quotes the Yerushalmi in Sanhedrin, Amar Kadosh Baruch Yisrael, Banai, Lechu, V'hidbadku B'chesed. Go and attach yourself to Chesed. It's an amazing and important insight for us that no matter how the world is treating us, and no matter what's going on in the world, we find chizuk, we find strength when we can at least be kind to one another. It's why it's so terrible when we're unkind. When people come to shul, you're in my seat, get out of my seat, and we're elbowing each other at the kiddush to get quicker and faster access to the, to the kugel, and we're unkind to one another. We call each other names, we marginalize one another, we put each other down, we judge one another, we leave people out, we leave people eating meals alone. When we're unkind to one another, it's like the world's not unkind enough to us, you have to also compound it by being unkind. Just be nice. Just be a nice person. Just be nice to one another. Because no matter how the world is treating us, no matter what else is going on in our lives, if at least we're kind to one another, and that's what the Chavetz Chaim is saying, that's the source of redemption. You want redemption, you can't necessarily change how other people are treating you. But we can change how we treat one another. And that's what it means, It was our performance of and predisposition towards chesed, that caused Hashem to lead us out. And maybe that's also the meaning of the Pasuk in Yirmiyahu that we sing and say on Yom Noraim, Zacharti lach chesed neorayach. Hashem, you remember the chesed of our youth. Says the Chavetz Chaim, what's the chesed of our youth? It took such chesed to follow Hashem out. That was such chesed. Hi, I broke you out of jail, and I've got wealth and a good meal and a hot shower for you. Oh, I'm going to do a great chesed. That's a great chesed that we followed Hashem. That's not what it's talking about. Says the Chavetz Chaim, the Chesed Neurayach is, I remember that no matter how you were betrayed by others, you chose to treat one another kindly. And because I remember it, I invoked that covenant of Chesed that you had with one another. What was the Chesed Neurayach? The Chesed that we did, the Chesed that we did in Egypt. When we hear someone who's sick or Chas V'Shalom an attack in Israel, we often say, Tehillim Kuf Chafalaf. We say, Hashem Shomrecha, Hashem Tzilcha Ayad Yeminecha. Hashem will protect you, he's your shadow. I'll end with this because we're over time. I apologize to Rabbi Moskowitz. What's the meaning of comparing Hashem to a shadow? Hashem Tzilcha Ayad Yeminecha. Hashem is your shadow. The answer is, a, sh- a shadow does exactly what you do, it's your mirror. And the same is true with Hashem. When no matter how the world is treating us, we're kind to one another, Hashem will be kind to us. But if we prove that we're unkind to one another, we can't even be kind to one another, then Hashem has no reason to be kind with us. Hashem tzilcha ayad yaminecha. He's your shadow. He will respond and reflect exactly what you do and how you behave. If we behave with kindness, that is the source of geula. That no matter how the world is treating us, we can redeem ourselves and extricate ourselves from whatever that exile in order to achieve a sense of holiness. We did two psukim. One of them even had four words in it. He did two hopes. Look him. We'll pick up with Tesvav Yedal and Mitzah Shem next year. Have a great day.